There was a very appropriate line in our worship today from O Holy Night that said, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. God was not in a rush to send the Savior. Everything was going to happen at the time and the moment that he had ordained for it to come to pass. Israel was waiting for the Messiah and that's sort of what the Christmas season is connected to. It's, it's a type of waiting. Those of you who might have heard the word Advent, it's a season that's tied to anticipation. And in a much smaller way, our kids anticipate, they wait for Christmas to come. Maybe another good parallel would be usually for English service, we're waiting for the service to end so we can go have lunch. I should warn you up front that today's message will be one of the longest messages I've ever given. And you're wondering, is he serious or not? But I don't say that as a reference to how many minutes the sermon will last. I say that as an indication of how many years we're trying to cover. Last week, we began what I refer to as the full Christmas story. We are marching to Bethlehem, so to speak, because the story of Christmas is actually part of a bigger story, which is the story of mankind. And we are called by God to understand that story and live in light of it. And when we do that, God gives to us true purpose and lasting joy. For those who don't know the story, for those who are not cooperating with God's story, the only thing this life can offer is flashes of pleasure. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, this life without God, apart from God, is vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all pointless. God wants us to know the full story, and that is the story of the redemption of man in Christ for the glory of God. So in last week's message, we started with creation, and we ended at the death of Moses. As we walk through that, I pointed out three primary themes. Let me share those with you one more time just as a way of review. The first theme was the purpose or the design of man. Human beings were created especially by God, specifically to glorify him by reflecting his authority, his rule, his holiness, his love as we have dominion over the planet and as we relate to one another. So when you clean your room and you organize it, or when you tend to your garden or your lawn, you are expressing the glory of God. That's what it is to be made in God's image. That is the calling of man. That's our responsibility. The second theme was the problem or the downfall of man. Because of Satan, sin comes into the world, and it brings with it physical consequences like sickness and death, and it brings spiritual consequences, which are now a nature bent away from God's design. We don't want to love people the way we should. We don't want to fulfill our calling. And in the end, we deserve eternal judgment. None of us individually and all of us corporately, none of us, we, none of us can fulfill God's design. We are corrupt as a human race. But the final theme we mentioned was the promise or the deliverance of man. God himself promised that one day someone would come to undo the curse of sin, to remove the stain of sin on this world and in our own beings, physically and spiritually. This is all going to be fixed one day. I want you to keep those themes in mind. You can call them whatever you want. I had man's purpose, man's problem, man's promise. If you prefer his design, his downfall, his deliverance. 
And I just kept writing his responsibility, his ruin, his redemption, his creation, his corruption, his cure, his start, his sin, his salvation. Call it whatever you want. But those are the themes. Make up your own. Just keep them in mind. This is what the world is waiting for. A savior is supposed to come and fix what Satan has broken. And that is everything in this world. The deliverer, we were told, was going to come from the seed of the woman. That is through Eve. And following her generational line, the hope for a global savior was going to come from her son, Seth. Eventually that came through his descendant, Noah. And then generations later, God revealed that the savior would come from the line of Abraham, and then the line of Isaac, and then the line of Jacob. And Jacob's children would be the nation of Israel. So the hope of humanity, despite everything else happening in the world at that time, the hope of humanity is tied to the nation of Israel. We were also told at the end of Genesis that the promised king would come from the tribe of Judah. So Israel, there were 70 people. They end up in Egypt. They're trying to, they're called to be a nation that will showcase the holiness and the power and the glory and the wisdom and the righteousness and the love of God. And to do that, they need a, a few things. They need people. They need to grow in number to be a mighty nation. They need a land to call their own. And they need to receive the law of God so that they can showcase his wisdom. The man God raised up to free them from slavery in Egypt was Moses. Moses took them out of Egypt. He gave them God's law. And he was leading them to a promised land. I'd like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. A couple passages here that we didn't look at last time. I think they'll set up our study today a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Just to understand what happened, he led a nation out of, is out of Egypt. They're in the desert 40 years. All, everyone over 20, for the most part, dies off. And now you have a second generation, and they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They're ready to cross into the promised land. But Moses repeats the law he gave them. I'll say it again. Deuteronomy 17, 14. And Moses has to repeat the law. That's what Deuteronomy is about. And specifically, he mentions their future rulers. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your own brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And this future king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Verse 18 continues. And when this king, the, the king that would, the king of Israel, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So Israel was a nomadic nation. They're traveling in the wilderness for 40 years, but now they're going to enter into their land. They're going to become a kingdom 
But they needed to ensure that the king and the rest of the people, by extension, did not fall away from the law of God given through Moses. They need to keep coming back to God's word. Jump over a chapter to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Listen to what else Moses says to the people. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God in his law set up distinct roles among the Israelites so that they could reflect his holiness and his love. With the instruction they received in the wilderness, Israel was given a line of priests. These were the sons of Levi, and their responsibility was to mediate God's relationship with the people. When you sin, you find a Levite, you do the sacrifice, and you are reconciled to God. The the priests mediate God's relationship with his people. Moses is going to die, and once he's gone, the hope of Israel is that they enter the land, and then they need a king, and the king's job is to mediate God's rule over the people. They're also now, based on what we saw in verse 18, expecting a prophet. And the role of the prophet is to mediate God's revelation to the people. So you've got the prophets, you've got the priests, you've got the kings. And in that system, God's going to showcase his relationship, his rule, and his revelation to the world. If Israel can get its act together as a nation, especially in regard to the prophets and the priests and the kings, they will fulfill their role of reflecting the holiness of God. So all that is background. Let's now jump into what happened after Moses died. This is the history of Israel. And in our time today, we're going to divide the history of Israel into four phases. If you did not like history in school, I will apologize ahead of time. But God has given us a story. And we're trying to do all of it in once at once. Four phases in Israel's history. Real simple. The first phase we're going to call no king. The following phase is one king. The phase after that is two kings. And the last phase is foreign kings. If you don't jot it, we'll go through them one at a time. But that's a real simple summary of Israel's history. They have no king. Then they have one king. Then they have two kings. Then they have foreign kings. That's the history of Israel in a nutshell. Let's start with no king. And underneath this heading, there are rulers who come up, even though they're not kings. That phase begins with the leadership of Moses. He's Israel's first national leader, but he was not a king. After Moses dies, the following leader is Joshua. Joshua leads the nation into the land of Canaan. They begin to conquer. They begin to divide the land up among the tribes. In the back of your Bible, sometimes you have a map. That's how they divided up the land. I'd like you to go with me, skip the book of Joshua, and go to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, second chapter, verse 7. This tells us what happened after Joshua died. Under Joshua's leadership, Israel is flourishing. So Judges 2, 7 says, All the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. 
and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So there's no king, but you have Moses, then you have Joshua, then you have elders, the elders who knew Joshua. And in all that time, Israel, they're headed in a good direction. But things then, very quickly, at least in a literary way, take a bad turn. Skip down to verse 10. Judges 2.10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How does that happen? Well, obviously they didn't see it because they weren't around at that time, but how do they not know God? How do they not know what God has done for them? Nobody taught them. One generation failed to pass it along to the next. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals or the Baals. These are the gods of the Canaanites. Verse 12, and they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So after the leadership of Joshua and his elders, we come to what's known as the time of the judges. It's a horrible time for the nation. If you want to read the book of Judges, I'll let you know ahead of time, it's a depressing book. Israel just gets worse and worse and worse. Unless we stand in judgment of Israel, we need to recognize that the pattern of Israel over these generations is the pattern we face week after week. Because we come to church and we worship God and God, I want to serve you. And then Monday morning, we're already in a fight with our spouse or our boss. I'm never going to sin like that again. And then we fall back into it. This is, this is the life. We can't do what we're called to do and neither can Israel. In all this time, God is faithful to preserve them. But over and over in the time of the judges, Israel faces the consequence of their sin and they are enslaved by their enemies. The time of the judges lasts about 350 years. So you have Moses, Joshua, the elders, and then you have the time of the judges. I'm not going to name all the judges, but the primary takeaway of the time of the judges comes to us in the closing verse of the book. So jump over to the end of Judges, just before Ruth, chapter 21, verse 25. Judges 21, 25, there is a phrase there that is used four times in the book, especially near the end. And it's emphasized again as we close this portion of Israel's history. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were characterized by stupidity, by sexual immorality. They have rejected the plan of God. You read the end of, of, of Judges. It's, they're in a civil war. Priests are chopping up their concubines. Chaos, wickedness. The downfall of man is evident. They need a king. Jump over with me to the next book. Well, next book is Ruth. We'll skip Ruth and go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. There comes one final judge that God raises up, but he's also a prophet. His name is Samuel. Samuel's mother is a woman named Hannah, who it appeared could not have children. So the birth of her son was a special gift from God. And Hannah, like every other faithful Israelite, was waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. So the blessing of her son 
points her to the coming blessing of another son, this king that God has promised who will bring victory and restoration. Look at what Hannah says as she praises God in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. It's a prophecy. 1 Samuel 2, 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. We're not gonna, our enemies are gonna be dealt with. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That was Israel's hope. A powerful king who would restore the nation and by consequence the entire world. At that time, horns were symbols of power, authority. A bull has horns. Oxen had horns. He will be exalted, and he's known as the anointed. In that culture, kings and priests and prophets were often anointed with oil, and so that was simply a synonym for a coming ruler, one who was chosen by God. The Hebrew term for an anointed one is Messiah, so that's where the word comes from. That's what Israel is waiting for. It's Messiah, it's anointed one. Hannah's son Samuel, it turns out, is not a king. But he does play an important role in that he is chosen to anoint the first official king of Israel. So now we go to the second phase of Israel's history, a time when Israel is united under one king. So we had no king, but now there's one king. There's a problem, however. The king, the first king of Israel, is not the man God chose. It's the man the people chose for themselves. His name was Saul. They chose him because he was tall. They chose him because he was handsome. He looked good going out to battle. We want him to represent our nation. He's anointed. He's the first official king of Israel. But he was not the promised king. Saul and his line is rejected by God. But after 40 years under King Saul, God brings a new king to power. The first king is Saul. The second king is David. David was a faithful king. And more significantly, he was from the city of Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah. So under that, if you're following the the one king section, we have Saul, then we have David. And we need to slow down a little bit when we talk about David, because David's kingdom is significant in the history of Israel, and by extension, the history of the world. David unified, he solidified the nation. Under his rule, the roaming tabernacle found a permanent place in Jerusalem. And that tabernacle was a, was a sign of God's presence, God's blessing. God was with his people. And David decides that he's going to beautify the temple. He makes plans. At the same time, though, God makes plans to solidify David's reign. Jump over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was faithful. David was marked by a humble obedience to God. And so God makes him a promise. Listen carefully. 2 Samuel 7, 9. God says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. No more enemies, no more battles. 
And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. By extension, what God means, he's going to give David a dynasty. That's his house. Verse 12 continues. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In the day of his iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's promise to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. Israel is waiting for a prophet, a priest, and a king. And now through this promise, they know that king is going to come from the line of David. He will be a son of David. And like I said last week, the promise is is being narrowed. We know it's going to come through Eve. We know it's going to come through Seth. We know it's going to come through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, to Jacob, through Judah. And now we know it's going to come through the line of David. This king, this son of David will rule forever and bring peace to the land and to all the earth. What this promise means is that the glory of David's rule is going to serve as a picture of the glory of the eternal rule of the coming king. The flip side to that is that the challenges and the pains that David also endures will be a picture of the pain that the future king will endure as well. David is a prototype of a ruler to come. And we don't have time today to see this for ourselves, but many of the Psalms that David wrote speak of righteousness and glory, but they also speak of pain and they point to a coming king. The latter half of David's rule was troubled. You guys know, I think David sinned against God in a major way. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered. And because of the violence that he brought to his kingdom, God said there would be violence in his family line. And so his children are marked by strife. David faced rejection and pain. But that pointed to the pain that the future son of David would also have to face. Saul was king for 40 years. David was king for 40 years. And when his time is over, the kingdom passes now to the third king, which is Solomon. Solomon's the final king under the section of one king. Saul, David, now Solomon. Solomon, in fact, was David's son. But was he the son of David who would rule in eternal glory and peace and righteousness. That's what the people of Israel want to know. The son of David is going to build a house for God and be blessed forever. Is that Solomon? When will the awaited king arrive? 
Solomon begins his reign with the plea for wisdom. He's marked by righteousness. He's marked by wisdom. Because of that, God blesses him with, with riches. Solomon uses those riches to beautify the temple. He covers it in gold. Now a, a magnificent monument, again, of God's blessing and God's presence with his people. Solomon started out great. But as most of you know, the latter half of his reign didn't go so well. You may have even had Solomon in your mind when we read the passages in Deuteronomy 17. The king shall not accumulate for himself too much gold, too much silver. Well, 1 Kings 10 tells us silver was as common as stone. The king shall not accumulate for himself too many wives. Solomon had, if you count the wives and the concubines, a thousand total. The king shall not return to Egypt. The first, the major queen was the princess of Egypt. He's using marriages to form political alliances depending on political devices rather than depending on God. Solomon and his many wives are turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this brings us to the next phase in Israel's history. They had no king. They had one king. And then we have the time of two kings. The 12 tribes of Israel are split into two kingdoms. You have the kingdom in the north, now known as Israel, the kingdom in the south, known as Judah. The leadership in the north is a free-for-all. If you can kill the king, you're the next king. If you survive, your son will become king. Some guys were kings for one week, then they were assassinated. In the south, the line of David continues. That's the period of the divided kingdom. For the most part, however, both kingdoms are falling away from God. Israel, again, is spiraling into wickedness. During the time of the two kings, God sends prophets, and they proclaim his message. Number one, they proclaim that judgment will come if the people refuse to repent. Number two, they claim that God has not forgotten his promise. The nation will be restored one day. That's the message of the prophets. Judgment is coming, but so is restoration. Repent and take hope. The reminder of God's promise doesn't just point back to David. It goes all the way back to Abraham and even before him to Adam and Eve. A king is going to come. He's going to rule in perfect righteousness. He's going to bring a blessing to the entire earth. He's going to undo the curse we are in. About 200 years after Israel is divided, a prophet rises up in the south whose name is Isaiah. Isaiah ruled, uh, ministered under kings whose kingdoms were marked by violence and wickedness. There was instability. And in contrast to that, Isaiah speaks of a coming king who will bring, who will bring righteousness and peace and stability both to Israel and to the world. A lot of prophecies we could cover. Some of them I'm just going to allude to, not have you turn there. But I do want to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. So I'm just warning you ahead of time. If you're frustrated with me, you can, you can, uh, the notes will all be online eventually. So just keep checking back the, the website. But let's look at Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah is speaking to a wicked king named Ahaz. And although he is wicked, he promises a restoration. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
The faithful people of Israel may have felt like God is leaving us. He's not blessing us. There's no peace. There's no crops. That was part of the, the curses in the law of Moses in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. They may have felt like God was distancing himself. But what was really happening was that God was where he is. Israel is separating themselves from God. But someone is going to come and restore the unity. God will again be with his people. There is an immediate significance to what Isaiah says. God's going to bring very soon a temporary restoration. But that short restoration in Israel is pointing to a future restoration under a glorious king. And the king will have as a title, Emmanuel. Im in Hebrew means with. New means us. El means God. Im-nu-el. Emmanuel, God with us. Or with us God, literally. He's going to unite the nation and their God once again. Jump over a couple chapters to Isaiah chapter 9. More titles, more explanations of this king, and the purpose here is to increase the hope of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The the people are in darkness. They're going to see a light, he says. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just think, these names are the opposite of what titles they would have given to the kings who were serving at the time. They weren't mighty, they were weak. They weren't wonderful counselors, they were wicked counselors. They didn't bring peace, they brought war. Verse 7 continues the description of this coming king. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. This is the hope Isaiah keeps pointing the people to. Just to summarize the rest of Isaiah, chapter 11 says the Messiah will have the spirit of the Lord upon him. He'll be mighty and powerful. He'll be wise and righteous. He'll be the son of David. Isaiah 25, 8 says he will swallow up death. Chapter 42 says this servant will bring justice to the nations. In Isaiah 49, it says that he, the king, will make Israel as a light to the nations. He'll bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And chapter 61 of Isaiah says he will bring liberty to the captives. What an amazing hope. It's not going to be good just for a little while. He's going to rule forever. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. But something curious happens in Isaiah's ministry. He speaks of a conquering champion, but also of a suffering servant. One who will be humiliated and rejected. And the scribes and the teachers, as far as we can tell, had... Difficulty understanding what this meant. Is it possible we'll get two messiahs? Some believe that some believed that if Israel was being righteous, they'll get a conquering messiah, and if Israel was in sin, they'd get a humble messiah. How can someone come and bring eternal victory and global peace, but also face rejection and shame? How does that work? Israel doesn't have all the answers. So they keep waiting, waiting for their 
Messiah. About 15 years after Isaiah's ministry, another prophet rose up called Micah. And listen to a famous prophecy he makes concerning the coming Messiah. This is from Micah 5.2. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's a humble city. Bethlehem means house of bread, humble town. You, from you, shall come forth for me, says the Lord, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So from Bethlehem, from the same city that David was from, an eternal king will come and he'll fulfill God's plan. This is God's promise. This is the hope of the people. But now it's time for us to go to the final phase of Israel's history. They had no king. They had a united kingdom, one king. They had two kings. That's a divided kingdom. And now comes the time of foreign kings. Israel in the north and Judah in the south repeatedly rejected the message of the prophets. Don't do this. Don't do this. Turn back to God. We don't care. We're doing things our own way. And as a result, God gives them over to be captured by foreign nations. The people are no longer free. In fact, they don't even live on their own land. They come and they're taken out of their land into slavery. The northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians. And about 150 years later, the southern kingdom is destroyed. It's taken over by the Babylonians. During this time, Israel now is not on its land, and they're under the rule of foreign kings. There are psalms written about, there are laments, dirges by the rivers of Babylon. We wept because we can't sing the songs of Jerusalem. But even in that time, even in the judgment of their sin, God sends prophets with the same message he's been saying from the beginning, but he's giving it to a new generation. One of the prophets who came after the destruction of the northern kingdom was named Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, 5, he speaks of a branch that will come from the tree of David. He will reign forever in wisdom and justice. Jeremiah chapter 31 also speaks of a new covenant. Your, your hearts are going to be circumcised. We, what we read about today. There's a new covenant coming. You're going to be made able to obey God. During this time, we also get a prophet named Ezekiel. He says very similar to um, what we'll see later. God's going to plant a tender twig and he's going to place it on a glorious mountain. Something is going to start small, but the whole world will see its glory. And then we get a prophet named Daniel. Go ahead and turn there with me to Daniel chapter 7. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you see all the short minor prophets starting with Hosea, just go back. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was a young man taken as a prisoner into Babylon. He and his friends were faithful to God. Early in the book of Daniel, he prophesies through a dream that empires are going to rise and fall, but one day an eternal kingdom will come and it will destroy every other nation. It will last forever. In Daniel chapter 7, the vision that he has is like one of a son of man coming before God. He is, God is there known as the ancient of days. Look at Daniel 7 verse 14. 
Daniel 7 and 14, to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This was a message of hope. Because here we are under the Babylonians. We're going to face trouble for some time, but that's not going to last forever. A new king will come. He will restore Israel. He will restore the world in glory. He'll rule forever. And just like Daniel prophesied, kingdoms rose and kingdoms fell. Seventy years after Babylon conquers Israel, the Persians rise to power. There came a Persian king named Cyrus, and in the plan of God, as he prophesied, Cyrus said, those of you Jews, you can go back. You can rebuild your city if you want. And so a group begins to return under the, under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild their nation on their land. Total, it took them 140 years to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls of the city. 140 years. You know why it took so long? Because they got about halfway done and said, ah, that's good enough. They just can't get with the program that God has given them. And again, I think as sinners, we all sympathize. In that time, though, God does what he had done through all of Israel's history. He sends prophets. And they have the same message as before. Don't ignore the law of God. God will be faithful to his promises. You are ruined in your sin, but redemption will come. One of those prophets is Haggai. Haggai prophesies that the treasures of the nations will come to Jerusalem. God's house will be made glorious again. You get another prophet in that time named Zechariah, and similar to Ezekiel, he says there's a branch coming. We're going to have a new temple. He says the nations are going to be conquered by Israel's king, and peace will come to the land. And again, it's all coming through the line of David. The final prophet of Israel is the last book of the Old Testament. I want you to go there with me. His name is Malachi. Some have said he was Malachi, the Italian prophet. His name's not Malachi, it's Malachi. Malachi is the final word from God in the Old Testament. Look with me at Malachi chapter 3. Despite all that is happening in Israel's history, despite the goodness of God they've seen in the recent years, they're turning away from God again. But God remains faithful to his promise. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. God says, Behold, I send my messenger. And this messenger, he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So two things are coming. First, a messenger is going to come. He's going to prepare the people. And then someone will come as a perfect representative of the Lord. And he will bring with him a new covenant. And for some, the coming of the new covenant, the coming of the Lord will be a joy. But for the majority of Israel, the coming of the Lord will be a horror. 
Just keep reading in verse 2. Malachi says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. In other words, this king is coming to clean house. You either get with the program or you face severe consequences. You will be purged and the righteous will remain. God will refine the nation. Once this king is done with his work, Israel and Jerusalem will be restored. And then along with them, the rest of the world. But Israel doesn't get it. On the one side, they're saying, I can't wait for God to come. I can't wait for the Lord to come and all our problems to be solved. And they don't realize the coming of the Lord, they'll be the problem that God's going to get rid of. Jump over to chapter 4 of Malachi. Same message, different words. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Malachi 4, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. They'll be burned. They'll be fuel for the fire. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. They're gone. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. It's very interesting imagery because a calf is, is very weak, but it's characterized by joy. Those of you who ever had puppies, that's what puppies are. They're, they're happy. They just run around and enjoy life. He says, that's the joy Israel's going to have. But they will also be mighty because they will tread down the wicked when this king comes. And notice what God says, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Israel, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. God says on the one hand, don't forget my laws. On the other hand, he says, don't forget my promise. So what happened after Malachi's prophecy? After Malachi, your, your page, it might be a blank page, your Bible just says the New Testament. It wasn't just the turn of a page, it was 400 years. And the people kept waiting. They sat under the authority of the Persians but the Persians were eventually conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks were eventually conquered by the Romans. 
And so the Jews are in their land, the land that God had promised them, but they don't have the freedom they hope for. They're still under the rule of a foreign king. And the cry of their heart is the Christmas song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. What was Israel hoping for? They don't want to have no kings. They don't want to have two kings. They don't want to be under foreign kings. They want to go back to one king. But it can't be any king. It needs to be the right king. It needs to be the true king, the promised king, the son of man, the son of David. Only he can fulfill God's promise. And just like Israel waited all those years for the king to come, we find ourselves today again waiting. We know the king has come to show himself, but he hasn't come to fulfill all these promises. He came once to provide salvation from sin. He came to gather citizens into his kingdom, but he's coming again and he'll fulfill every promise the father has made to us. He is the Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the hope of Israel and the hope of the nations. Our calling is to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, when we think soberly about our own lives, about our families, about our church, about our nation, about our world, we see the ruin and the downfall of sin everywhere. There are wars, there are diseases, there is death. And beyond all that, there is wickedness in our hearts. We need a Savior. We need a Messiah. And you have so graciously provided him for us in Jesus Christ. He was the suffering servant who took our place, who bore your wrath in the place of sinners, and who was raised on the third day in victory over sin and death, and who will come again to undo the curse. Help us trust in him. Help us proclaim that message to all we'll hear, to all who will hear. Help us proclaim that message to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And in that, may we wait with perseverance and with hope and with joy. Whatever problems we're facing, whatever frustrations we have in our life now, help us stir one another up to love and good deeds, to hope and to wait in the coming of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that if the coming of Christ should be delayed, that you would enable us to teach the next generation and the following generation, our children and our grandchildren, to hear the glorious truths of your power, O oh God and of your holiness and of your judgment, but also of your compassion. It only takes one generation to fall away. We see that with Israel. We pray that in this nation and in every nation, in Israel and in every other Gentile nation, you would bring people to know Christ and to follow him. And we do pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Would Christ come soon? And would our hope manifest itself in eternal joy, eternal glory, and eternal peace. 
Until then, Father, may we wait well. In Jesus' name, amen.